Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. Welcome this week to the nonprofit news feed, of course, brought to you by Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. And we are covering, you know, nonprofit news that comes up and we try to choose topics that are both sort of trending of the moment, but also have a a unique nonprofit involvement or tie-in or implication. And I'll just say, you know, seasonally, sadly, this one topic of shootings in America comes up more often than I wish it did. But, you know, today's topic really is about how nonprofits are trying to mobilize in yet another response to a shooting. And honestly, even from when we sent and summarized this email, there was another uh, shooting in, in Kentucky. And so frankly, you know, we're referencing one, but in another way, we're trying to summarize what's going on at a high level and what nonprofits are doing about it. Yeah, George, I appreciate that introduction. So to your point, the top story that we do want to talk about today is, of course, the shooting now two weeks ago in Nashville, Tennessee, that occurred uh, where three children and three adults were killed in a live shooter, active gunman situation. And while that tragedy occurred, the m- main thing we want to focus on for this story is actually the nonprofit and advocacy response, because in some ways that community uh, has seen a tremendous amount of, yes, political strife, but also really important mobilization and activism from the communities, uh, particularly those within Nashville who are pushing for gun reform, which according to proponents of uh, gun control legislation, is severely lacking, not just in Tennessee, but across the United States. So last week, student activists from March for Our Lives and Students Demand Action, which is a subsidiary of Everytown for Gun Safety, have been protesting for gun reform and school safety in and around Nashville, as well as Tennessee broadly following the March 27th shooting. Their protests have intensified after the state's Republican majority voted to expel two young representatives in color, uh, representatives of color, representatives Jones and Pearson. This comes amid a recent Pew Research Center analysis of CDC data, which found that gun deaths among children and teens in the U.S. increased by 50 percent from 1,700 approximately in 2019 to nearly 2,600 in 2021. Uh, The gun death rate for minors also rose 46%, reaching its highest point since 1999. So in the backdrop of this tragic shooting, the significant mobilization and advocacy around gun reform, we have statistics now uh, that show that children younger than 18 are now 2021 was the most dangerous year in a long time in terms of gun deaths. The majority of those gun deaths from ages 0 to 18 are, in fact, homicides. That number breaks down when you start dividing that demographic up by race and age. It seems like our our children are 
dying. And, and even just yesterday, we hear about another mass shooting at a bank in Louisville, Kentucky, where five people were shot, six including the gunman died. George, what's, what's the take on this? Gun violence is at the top of everyone's mind. We see the same nonprofit and advocacy organizations stepping up. Uh, to make their voices heard. In this case, it seems it's particularly young people who are stepping to the stage to make their voices heard in in Nashville and Tennessee and around the country. But what should nonprofits take away from this, particularly those advocating for, for gun reform, which despite the narrative, just it, it, this seems like a, a perennial thing we do every couple months and we have all of this and there's no real change. How How do you maintain hope if you're an advocacy organization in moments like this? Well, first, you know, I want to jump in on the fact that uh, representatives Jones and uh, Jones and Pearson were actually reinstated as of April 11th to the, the Nashville legislature. And, you know, they were called out for protesting, you know, and we've got great organizations like March for Our Lives in every town uh, out there trying to, figure out ways of getting legislation, legislators, elected representatives to wake up, to make this a nonpartisan issue, to frankly, not just cut and paste the, we're so sorry for this tragedy. And, you know, the answer is more guns. Like the, the trend is clear. And frankly, you know, the data from Pew is always helpful. I, you know, I think this is a big one, just holding up the mirror and this is why I called to and looked to to Pew. I wish they had included 2022 uh, data. Perhaps they're still working through those numbers. But reports for 2022 show that uh, in the neighborhood of 6,000 uh, children uh, in the United States were killed or injured. I think there's you know some question of breaking that out, but that that is still a, a massive number. And so you know the fact that there are more guns in the system uh, as a net result of record breaking sales throughout the pandemic uh, for for guns. Like if your thesis is that more guns equals more safety, it's like at, at what point did we hit that? And if you're looking for just an amazing conversation, you can find John Stewart's takedown of a representative talking about like, at what point do we hit peak safety when every American has 20 guns, 40 guns? Like when does safety kick in? And all I can really do when I look at it is say like, hold up the data, keep up the pressure. I, I liked, you know, how, you know, each time it's not just malaise setting in, but that's kind of like what, you, what you're fighting. These numbers are going up at a drastic rate. And so hopefully nonprofits are able to take this information and, and bring it to voters. You know, we're coming into an election cycle. Bring it to voters and say, uh, I, I know you love trying to restrict who can go to your freaking, I, I know you love that. I know you, you can't wait to stop people from competing on sports teams, but it's pretty hard to compete when you're being shot at. I think if more people can get in line with the prioritization on left and right politic, I, I think nonprofits can can pull to that. And I also think it's not just sitting on the shoulders of March for Our Lives in every town for, for gun safety. I think other nonprofits can use this to, frankly, put in perspective how politicians are 
using and misusing political narratives to draw your attention away from critical issues, saying, you know, this elected official, for example, just going after, I don't know, saying trying to remove, uh, let's say, racial history from our education. How about trying to remove bullets from our classrooms? Our politicians are here talking about this. So, like, I think what I'm hoping is that in narratives, more nonprofits beyond just the causes are able to use this in juxtaposition to say, like, look at what a sideshow is going on here to distract people in social impact from the main causes of, like, what needs to be done. Uh, so I, I'm hoping, because I, that's what I... That's the energy I choose toward that uh, this narrative gets adopted by more folks. It is backed by data. I love what Pew is doing. I love what other groups are doing. Yeah, George, I think that's right. I will say, for better or for worse, the whole debacle around the expulsion of these representatives has made what was kind of a regional story a national story. And it has, in addition to these, these terrible shootings, positioned gun reform at the top of the national debate yet again. And I think we can hope that the more times that this happens, the the national conversation begins to shift even more. And as nonprofit advocacy organizations, taking advantage of that momentum in the moment is really important. We talk about this all the time. If you are uh, advocating for safer communities or gun reform or gun legislation, whatever type of policy intervention that your organization may be promoting that even relates not even just to gun safety, but even to the safety of children, any sort of topic, right? This impacts your communities. And this could be an opportunity uh, to center this debate amongst your nonprofit constituents. So something to think about moving forward without a doubt. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Absolutely. I'll take us into our next story. And this one comes from Fierce biotech. Uh, and it is that the louders, the lauders, the lauders of Estee Lauder fame have given a $200 million donation to the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, ADDF, which uh, since 1998 has invested $253 million into its Alzheimer's Portfolio. So uh, the ADDF formed 25 years ago in honor of cosmetic business tycoon Estee Lauder and received this money from the Lauder family, the nonprofit's largest donation ever. And it will go towards accelerating the development of next-gen drugs. The Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation has in its pipeline. And it was, interestingly enough, founded on a venture philanthropy model in 1998 and has invested its portfolio via grants and investments for new Alzheimer's drugs, biomarkers, and prevention programs, among other projects. George, we don't often, there's lots of, you know, high value donations that we see come through our pipeline and the in our, our feeds and all of that. We don't often highlight them. This is a this is an instance where we did. Why does this why is this donation so important and what should our listeners uh, take away? I think the large donation toward a, a singular cause like Alzheimer's research is, is one of note. I think there's also going to be an increasing amount 
of philanthropic attention spent on how we're supporting the largest generation in American history reaching, you know, the retirement age, but also age of vulnerability for these types of degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. I, I also like their their venture approach uh, where we're talking about working with drug markets and companies to subsidize the research, the risk associated with bringing a drug to market. Uh, I think is, is very interesting and also effective. Um, one that I know has been championed by the Michael J. Fox Foundation as well in their pursuit to uh, uh, cure, ideally, but manage, yes, Parkinson's. Uh, and this uh, this approach is interesting to dig into, especially if you're in the medical nonprofit grant-making world because they are able to leverage their dollar one to 10x because they are working with uh, drug companies and providers that are in that research phase saying like, hey, you know, we're, we're not just going to go alone. We're going to like try to help you accelerate a drug to market, which is incredibly expensive. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I think that's a great summation and, and something to continue to follow when it comes to this type of model. And we've talked about the nonprofit nonprofit angles when it comes to the rollout of, of pharmaceuticals before and the potential benefit. I think the state of California has uh, publicly invested in in drugs. I think it was insulin we were talking about just a couple of weeks ago. So so we're con- we'll continue to follow uh, the nature of philanthropy related to the pharmaceutical and medicinal world, but. I can take us to our next story, and this one comes from WTOP, and the title of this story is that Americans know very little about charities, according to a new poll. So the story says that the first comprehensive poll to measure public attitudes on foundations and nonprofits shows that, yes, charities are more trusted than other institutions such as business, governments, and news media, but it shows warning signs for nonprofits, including that only 48% the nonprofit, only 48% of people think that nonprofits are on the right track. Only a third believe that charities contribute a lot to society, and only 5% of Americans believe uh, or think they or someone in their immediate family has been helped by a nonprofit, even though one in 11 work for a charitable organization. So George, a lot to unpack here. It seems that Americans trust nonprofits in theory, but when it comes to are nonprofits actually helping, uh, the data is a little bit more worrisome. What's our takeaway in this? Is this a societal shift? Is this bad marketing? Uh, What's going on here? You know, I think I I reasonably look toward Edelman's annual trust uh, survey to like benchmark it. And so in one sense, I always look and say like, look, out of out of context, if you just look at the nonprofit industry, you're like, oh, no, it's dropping. But frankly, our, our trust in overall institutions has flagged, and that goes from companies to government to also, of course, nonprofits. So, you know, I, I think this probably mirrors an overall decline in net trust in organized institutions of power. Uh, but I think it is even more important to sort of understand how this might overlap with with your audience or people that are, are fence sitters, how you might overcome some of these objections more nuanced in your donation pages, your appeals, your even welcome series to new donors of how 
you can look at this data saying, what is it that they're not trusting? What is it about our industry that has the seeds of mistrust? And how do we deal with that and unpack that up front? Because I think this is a hidden hurdle maybe in in conversion rates for for new new donors and maybe even reoccurring, right? Where you have that single donor coming back only, you know, 20, 30% of the time uh, based on the source where they came from. So I like snapshots like these. I'm always skeptical of the survey, the sample size, and what you're taking away. Uh, but I think there's some useful things in here. So if your your fundraising team is <clears throat> is listening, you can send this their, their way and ask how, how you are potentially uh, creating rebuttals to the trust narrative. George, I think that that is a healthy analysis. They've given a lot for our listeners to chew on, but I absolutely agree. And this is this is something I think we, we think about a lot when we try to contextualize trust in American institutions, not just within the sector, but across all of the sectors. So thanks for doing that for us. All right. I can take us into our next story. And this one comes from ProPublica, the independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit investigative news outlet formed in 2008. And the title of this one is that Clarence Thomas secretly accepted luxury trips from a major GOP donor. So Clarence Thomas, the famously conservative judge or justice rather on the Supreme Court, uh, has for decades uh, been receiving numerous benefits, shall we say, uh, from his acquaintance with people, I'd say wealthy people of certain political and monetary influence, particularly in the GOP world. So, um, this article uh, particularly talks about how uh, Justice Thomas, as well as his conservative activist wife, Ginny Thomas, uh, particularly uh, seemed to fly around the world with this GOP mega donor, uh, Harlan Crow. Thomas has, from Mr. Crow, uh, gone on excursions on a 162-foot mega yacht on trips that are estimated to cost upwards of $500,000. Thomas himself makes $285,000, but has vacationed on Crow's super yacht around the globe. Uh, flown on Harlan Crow's private Bombardier Global 5000 jet, uh, has gone with Crow to the Bohemian Grove, the exclusive California all-mare retreat, Crow's sprawling ranch in East Texas, and Thomas typically spends about every week, every summer, or one week every summer at Crow's private resort in the Adirondacks. The article suggests that his failures report the flight's uh, appear to violate a law passed after Watergate. That, of course, is left up to interpretation. Either way, not a great look. And of particular interest to this podcast is I want to highlight that the quote here is during just one trip in July 2017, Thomas's fellow guests included executives at Verizon and PricewaterhouseCoopers, major Republican donors, and one of the leaders of the American Enterprise Institute, a pro business conservative think tank according to records reviewed by ProPublica. The painting of Thomas at Topridge, where he was, shows him in conversation with Leonard Leo, the Federalist Society leader regarded as an architect of the Supreme Court's recent turn to the right. George, I don't know about you, but there is no chance that Justice Thomas is talking to Leonard Leo, the president of the Federalist Society, about anything involving the courts or policy or law. They're just friends, right? 
I joke. Joking aside, this is a pretty egregious abuse of power, in my opinion. Corruption, was it illegal uh, for not disclosing it? Maybe. Uh, nothing will probably happen. Nothing ever does happen. But either way, I think it speaks to the inappropriate coziness of public servants with, uh, quite frankly, wealthy operators seeking to influence our public institutions, including Leonard Leo, particularly of the Federalist Society, who we talked about on this podcast, who has started uh, multiple extremely large size uh, dark money 501c4 organizations that shuffle millions of dollars around uh, the right the right wing conservative legal world. Uh, George, I don't really have a nonprofit take other than uh, rich people trying to influence the court, and it looks like they're doing it. Yeah, we kind of, I, you know, you were saying, joking before we turned on recording, like you wanted a, an excuse to talk about this, and ProPublica is a, is a nonprofit covering it. Uh, I would say this is something that is important actually from a nonprofit perspective because, as you are aware, Supreme Court justices are elected for life. And there has been a, a long time pull um, by certain nonprofit organizations to install uh, conservative judges. Uh, and it seems as though it's not just to install them, but also to keep them voting conservative. And that incentive aligns with these lavish vacations. And it really just comes down to money, power, time, and influence. And frankly, if I know that my annual super yacht vacation will probably happen, but it might be happening more likely if I vote certain consistent ways versus breaking ties, you know, there is an undeniable link and it should be absolutely examined. I was actually looking at a different sort of parallel to, but hold on, to come back to the, also the nonprofit angle in the, the lobbying sense. And you're like, oh, we can't lobby Supreme Court justices, because that's decision like, okay, well, maybe, hypothetically, you could have a vacation fund set up for putting, I don't know, vacation rights for anybody who's interested in voting a certain way in abortion. Like, is this opening a door to lobbying of saying like, oh, here's your annual vacation, as long as you vote this way, here's your, you know, we'll become your friend. You can, I'm the CEO of a, I happen to be a CEO of a nonprofit. I'm your friend. Would you like to go on a, a vacation to, I don't know, wherever you'd like to go, all expense paid, and we'll fundraise for that? Is this a, is this a door to lobbying and influence? And I, I don't think I can say no that quickly. So I, I think, to me, this opens up a problem and exposes an issue. Uh, and also, the juxtaposition here is that uh, if you want something interesting of like, oh, it's just, you know, if you're of the mindset, like, ah, oh, this is just a, you know, friends and a paid vacation, and they just happen to be that way. Look at the NCAA recruiting rules for athletes to colleges. Like I went through this process. I was actually like went to a division one school and I remember being like, you have to like get here on your own. You get like a per diem of like $35. They cannot give you any gift above like $50. And God help me, if I had been taken to like some sort of trip or something else, like I would have been ineligible. Here's what I'm going to have to say. Like, how can the, the rule for athletes with no freaking money being moved into college have greater scrutiny than the U.S. Supreme Court? George, that's a very good question. And <laughs> uh, I, 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 I wish there was an also obvious a nonprofit, answer. Also different rant for a different day. 
makes more money than any other major sports league. Yes, that is that is a. It's different easier, way. you know what? It's easier when you don't pay uh, uh, pay your employees, your athletes, your competitors. It's easier. Boom! Just image and likeness. That's a whole. We should do a sports podcast. We did. Page. We did do a little bit on that. I want to be actually. Hold on. I'm being a little unfair. The NCAA. They do. <laughs> they do. Amazing. We'll 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 wait for the moment. I'm being unfair. The NCAA. Actually, I'll say. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, but George, to your point, it's unacceptable. I'll also say, this is an egregious abuse of power. Um, that being said, I would not place money that the other Supreme Court justices are saints either, right? Especially over the past 30 no. years. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, <laughs> so so lest we think that we're, we're trying to gang up on Thomas, this is, of course, egregious, you know, doubtful the other uh, the others have a perfect record either. But to your point, can our institutions withstand money influence? And we need to do, if the past six years have taught us anything, it's that we, as a society, as nonprofits, a lot of those dark money institutions are nonprofits, we need to reevaluate our relationship with public service, public policy, and lobbying is a thing. You lobby for bills. Lobbying is really, really important. But the extent to which some organizations are able to infiltrate uh, the highest levels of power, the Supreme Court, which essentially has the unilateral power to do most anything, that opens up a lot of questions. And we'll continue to ask those questions, but maybe a good place to start for right now. Well, we had some solid rants today, a little longer than usual, pretty happy with it, but I do have an important question for you, Nick. Oh, no. Uh, how exactly do you measure the weighted impact of a nonprofit's social media influence? <laughs> the weighted impact? <laughs> I do mm-hmm. not know. Instagrams. Insta. Well, that's what you get for making it to the end. Leave a rating or review if you feel like it. If not, that's fine too. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you.